coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 4th of February, 2024, The Rocky Road to Intimacy. So how did last week go? No problems, no issues, no struggles? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I invite you to turn back into the book of James with me this morning. We'll continue our investigation of trials in the believer's life. We had a guest speaker last week, so the first part of this message was actually a couple weeks ago. So I thought I'd take a few moments just to review some definitions and some concepts before we jump into the text this morning. We didn't get very far, only into verse 2 primarily. We made a distinction between trials and temptations. And I tried to work, rework that in your notes. So at first glance, a trial looks undesirable. Who wants a trial? Nobody wants a trial. But it can lead to something that's good. Whereas a temptation, at first glance, looks desirable. That's something that sounds good, but can lead to something terrible. So there's quite a contrast between those two. We talked about counting it all joy. When we count, we, were, we mentioned that to count meant to think about all the different factors. And we mentioned some here. Uh, God knows us intimately. We're loved. We're secure in him. He promised us to see us through temptation. He'll see us through every trial. And trials then reveal our faith dependence on him. All these factors go into a trial that we have to consider so that we can say it's all joy. And we define joy then as happiness that is dependent upon Jesus and not the circumstances. So that's sort of a brief summary of um, the message from two weeks ago. And we wanted to carry that on a little bit and deal with the why of a trial. Why, why does God sin testing our way? Why do we have trials? Couldn't we just as soon do without them? Everybody says amen to that one. And he gives us a reason. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As, as James is writing to the church and to the believing Jews that were dispersed through the Roman world, he says, this is something you already know, but oftentimes sort of slips out of our head when we're faced with a trial. And that is that a trial was designed to test your faith, to test your faith. 
And as we, as we were talking about this testing, it is for the purpose of proving your faith. In other words, it isn't to cause you to fail. God doesn't want you to fall. That isn't the point of it. What he does is allows us to go through trials to show us something that maybe we wouldn't have known and seen before, but also to build into our life a more consistent life of faith. As he says here, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And the idea of steadfastness is to be consistent, to stay the same and not easily changed. Don't be unexpectedly switching from one thing to the next, but rather to stay consistent. So the first principle then is a believer's ability to consistently walk by faith is a result of trials rightly handled. A believer's ability to consistently walk by faith is a result of trials rightly handled. In other words, as we operate in faith when we face a trial, we are strengthened by that very test to make us better to face a trial the next time. It's like someone who practices it, whatever their field of expertise is, whether it's a musician and an instrument, whether it is on the job and working on a skill that you do again and again the right way, it gets better and easier and you're not as flustered and you're not as confused and you know what to do. That is the purpose of trials in the life. That as we handle them, God's desire for us is that we get better at faithing. I know that's not a real word, but you know what I'm saying. That we become better at moving immediately to say, okay, God, I see what this test is. I see what this trial is. This is a test of my faith. And so this is a time for me not to disengage from my walk of faith, but rather to focus on my walk of faith. Because oftentimes when a trial comes into our life, regardless of what it is, it is something that distracts us. We are busy doing one thing and then something comes into our life and it distracts us and we're now taking care of it. Whether it's a flat tire, whatever it would be, all of a sudden we go, that wasn't part of my schedule for today. That wasn't part of my plan. I had no thoughts about that. And then it happened. And the question goes, how do we respond then? How do we respond? Do we, at that point, focus just on the trial? Or do we go, oh, no. The Lord is trying to do something in my life, trying to build my faith as I face this trial. He wants me to be more steady in my reaction toward the issues that I face in a daily walk, that it might be a walk of faith. 
A good example is found in the Old Testament in a story that we're very familiar with, but I invite you to go there anyway. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you get there, you might not recognize the passage just by the address, but it won't take you long to figure out what's going on. In 1 Samuel 17, David had already been anointed as king, but that was back at his home with his father, Jesse, and his brothers. When we find chapter uh, 17, we find that Israel is engaged in a war. And it's in a war with the Philistines. And so there's a battle going on. And in the process, they pick up a champion by the name of Goliath, the Philistines do, and they're going to challenge the, the Jewish nation to a one-on-one -on -one battle, winner take all. And of course, they think they've got the winner. And so it says, whose height was six cubits, so, and a span. And so a uh, cubit approximately 18 inches. So you basically have a nine foot and a span, about another six inches or so. And so he's almost 10, 10 foot tall, this guy. This is, this is a, a tall dude, okay? And what does it say about him? He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. In other words, you wouldn't want to wear this on a daily basis. It has so much weight to it. And he says, in fact... He had a shield bearer who went before him and, uh, and he had a javelin, a bronze slung between his shoulders and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. In other words, this was going to be some sort of guided missile. This was not going to be some little flaky dart to be thrown at an enemy. This was going to be something that would skewer you big time. And that with a shield bearer in front of him. So he had a portable moving defense uh, position. And he stood, and, he, and it says, the scripture says, he stood in verse 8 and shouted the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to battle, draw up for a battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself. Let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you should be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And of course, 
they had lined up all sorts of guys that were ready to fight him. No, no, no. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So here we have this champion. And he says, listen, if you win, we become your servants. If we win, you become our servants. And you know what he's thinking. There's no way the first part of that works. We're going to win. I'm a champion. No one like me in your army. If you come up against me, I'm going to win. And you're going to then uh, become our servants. That's just how it's going to be. In this situation then, David <clears throat> was sent uh, by his dad, Jesse, and, uh, and he sends then uh, David to go to the battlefield to minister to the brothers who were in the army. In verse 17, it says, Take your brothers an ephod of this parched grain and he set ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers and take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. In other words, go and get a report. How are things going on the battlefield? And he says, and take along some food. There's no serviceman that's not going to want some food after in the field. And so David, then commissioned by dad, goes and he comes upon the scene with, with uh, Goliath standing out in the field day after day, challenging the, the uh, armies of Israel. So that's the setup. When David hears about this, David is ready to go to battle. And we can see that David uh, responds, first of all, to his brothers, having heard the challenge, and says, who's going out? Who's going out? And the oldest brother gets upset with David and says, why have you come down? Have you left a few sheep in the wilderness? He says, I know that you're pres presumptuous. You presume and the evil is in your heart for you come down to see the battle. Was that the case? No, dad had sent him. This wasn't David's idea, David's idea to go and check out how the battle was going. This was dad's idea. But his brother picked on him and said, ah, you're just presumptuous. And when the words of David spoke, because he, he challenged them, he had said, look what he said back in verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, what should be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? He says, how come nobody stepped up? He's been challenged, our God. And of course, word gets back then to Saul. 
We come to the crux of this in verse 32, when David is now before Saul. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Okay. And Saul said to Dave, David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Do you hear what was going on here? David said, as if this was my first test of faith, you might be right. But it hasn't been my first test of faith. I've been taking care of dad's flocks. And I've faced bears and lions. And when they come, I either chase them away, or if they get a hold of one, I hunt them down, kill them, and get rid of that, and take that animal out of their mouth. I deliver them, save them. And if they come up against me, then I slay them. He says, this isn't my first battle. And he's developed for us a principle. A believer's ability to consistently walk by faith is a result of trials being rightly handled. He says, I handled the bears. I handled the lions. I can handle the lions. He says, my faith life has been developed as I've trusted him seen him deliver me time and time and time again. And if you think this Philistine is anything, he's nothing because he's challenged not me. He's challenged my God. He's challenged my God. So we have the lesson then from David is that a consistent walk of faith is a result of trials rightly handled. But James isn't done there. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness is the ability to consistently respond the right way to a trial when it comes, okay? But he's not done there. And he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. He says, the end result isn't just steadfastness, the ability to go then and be more and more consistent in my walk of faith. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, 
and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials may disrupt our schedule, but they can refine and purify your faith. We don't like the trials, we don't like the disruption, but if we approach them in the proper way with faith, they can refine that faith and purify that faith. The words that are used here are interesting, and they're actually several words that are conveying the same idea. He says that you may be perfect and complete. Now, we jump on the word perfect, and we think, oh, that means no blemishes, no issues. It is done and complete. Well, the idea of perfect here is fully developed. When a child is born, yeah, we see that little one brought home and uh, passed around the family and they're this size. And you go, look at their toes. And we go, yes, and he's got dad's eyes and mom's thumb. Okay, just seeing if she was paying attention. Okay, and I go, they're perfect. And you go, well, let's enter them in the Olympics. Why are you kidding me? It's a baby, can't even roll over on its own. <laughs> the idea behind perfect here is fully developed. The idea of growing in maturity to the place where the capabilities have been refined. All those bones have grown, the muscles have increased, the skill sets have have been developed, and now at a late teen age or early 20s, they're, they're in the peak of their ability, and what they can do now compared to when they were just first born is night and day. And the picture that James is painting for us here, he says, as we practice our faith, as we then respond with faith to the issues of our day, we become perfect or mature in our faith. The idea of completeness is along the same line. That is wholeness, undamaged, intact, blameless. I can tell you we're thinking about that kind of stuff. We're packing up stuff. I know you don't want to hear this. We're packing up stuff and we're going to ship it across country. And what will it look like when we open the boxes at the other end? <laughs> we hope everything comes through undamaged and intact. And Paul uses this word here, complete, to say that when we face trials in our life, God's desire for us is that we be steadfast, 
raised to maturity and completely intact. Our faith will be completely intact. You ever had any doubts or questions about your relationship with God? I know none of you have, because I never have. Of course we do. And Paul says, and James says here, that trials then are in the process of refining us so that our faith is fully intact. And I can say this, that while I don't have an answer to every every question that is thrown at me, I have long since stopped wondering whether the faith that I believe is true or not. There's no question there. My confidence is in the Lord and the Lord alone. That's it. But he goes and adds one more. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You have everything that you need. The Lord says, the only way that you can get there is through this coursework of trials. That's how you get there. We go, I want to take them out of the curriculum. God says, no, I put them in the curriculum so that you would be brought to completeness and maturity and you would lack nothing. I'm sorry, Mike, but this, this illustration popped into my head. I'm sorry. Have you ever gone to the, the hardware store to pick up some items for a DIY project that you're working on? Maybe you're doing a repair or something and you go down there and you're looking for the items that you need and or think that you need and even engage one of the workers at the hardware store, maybe even Mike. And you say, this is what I'm doing. And he goes, well, I think you're gonna need this and this and this. And you do have this at home? Yeah, I got that, okay. Well, you, sh you should be okay. But he's only working off what information you've given him. So you go home and you start working on a project. Have you ever had to return to the hardware store? Because you were missing a part and the part wasn't exactly right. And you go, I think I got it now, okay. Appreciate your help, go home and you work on some more and you go, oh boy, I'm glad I live downtown now and not out in the country because the trip is a lot shorter and I can make my way back to the hardware store to pick up that one night. That's never happened in your business, right, Mike? Okay, good. The idea here is that God says, I want you to be lacking nothing. You fall short in no regard. The end result of trials is a believer's whose first response is to immediately move. You have to write all that down. First response is to trust the Lord. In other words, <clears throat> we come across a trial, 
before we can even think of what I need to do, we've already moved into this is a trust the Lord moment. See what I'm saying? That we don't think, oh man, I got to fix this flat and where's my, where's my spare and where's my jack? And I say, no, the first thing is go, Lord, you just got me involved in a trial. I'm here to trust you. Let's see what happens now. One year we were taking the kids in our, uh, our station wagon down to uh, Portland. We had a uh, children's dentist that we just loved. And uh, got in the car and I had a quarter of a tank. That was going to be plenty to get me where I needed to be and I could get some fuel if I needed some before coming home. And we started going and the car started running rougher and rougher. And then the mid-span of the 205 bridge, it decided, I'm gonna let you look at the view standing still. <laughs> and we're going, here I am with a couple kids in the mid-span of the 205 bridge. What in the world do I do now? And I can tell you at that time, I wasn't thinking, oh Lord, thank you for this test. But our joy comes from trusting the Lord. You know what happened? We got out of the car, closed it up, we don't have a gas can or anything. We don't know what we're going to do. We started walking towards Oregon. We hadn't even got two car lengths and a truck pulled over. And this guy leaned out of the truck and he goes, you guys need a ride? I go, yeah, he is. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, and I was just wondering if I could give you a ride. I go, that sounds like pretty good, you know, recommendation. So we hopped in, jammed all into the front seat of his truck, and I said, yeah, if you could just take us to a, a gas station or something. He goes, oh, no. And he took us to a gas station. We got a can of gas. He took us back across the bridge. Of course, you have to go all the way back and swing around on no plane and come back again. And he stayed with us until we got our car running. The Lord took care of us that day. You know he does that from time to time. But the purpose of trials is to say, is my Lord worthy of my trust? And is he watching out over me? And can I trust him? One day I was coming home from work, and uh, this is before, uh, while well, I was still going to seminary, and uh, I drove from the, the warehouse I worked at, around the corner down the street, and then I was headed over a bridge. It was just an overpass over the freeway. 
84. I got to mid-span of the little bridge. I mean, we're not talking about a big thing. And I hear this noise and the car stops having any go. I was coasting a little bit, but I didn't have any go. I looked in the rearview mirror and the drive shaft was laying in the street. <laughs> and I go, what do I do here? But I was just up at the top of the knoll and I said, well, I don't want to stay here because I'm blocking the lane. So I wonder if I could just, and I looked around and opened the car door a little bit, pushed it past center point and let it roll down and I was able to pull into the DMV. Called some friends that came. We got the car all working and I go, Lord, that could have happened just about any place. But it happened right there. I was able to roll down. Thank you, Lord. What God wants to do in our life is have us immediately move to him when faced with a trial. That's why he says, you're going to count it all joy because you're going to want to see me and then you are going to see me in your trials. If you found that to be the case, are you still struggling when you come up against something to move quickly to him? Now, we're not done with dealing with trials, and Lord willing, next week we'll talk about the provision that God gives us if we don't know how to face one. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next time. But I just want to encourage you that God is in the process of refining us through these trials if we respond properly in faith. If we say, Lord, I certainly don't know what's going on, but I trust you. Show me what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to deal with this. And his purpose is to refine us so that we're fully mature, complete, and lacking nothing when it comes to faith. Wow. With that in mind, we want to go to the Lord's Supper this day and thank the Lord for the great provision of salvation and all of its ramifications in our life. Can you imagine living life without him? I can't. I can't. So let's take a, a few moments. I'll move down to the table and uh, we'll give you a few moments to... Uh, Go to the Lord, prepare your hearts. We'll share the elements in a few moments. The fruit of the vine and the broken unleavened bread represent Jesus Christ's body and blood and his sacrifice on our behalf so that we can experience so great a salvation. So you give a few moments here and Michael move the camera, I'll move down.
Heavenly Father, we're talking about trials while sitting here in a comfortable auditorium. That doesn't mean there's no trials going on in our life. It's just in this environment, they're not as pressing. We may be headed right back home or into, we're already in the midst of a trial that maybe others around us are not aware of, but you know them all together. You know what we're gonna be facing this next week. I'm sure Fred didn't think in terms of falling off a ladder this week. So Heavenly Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would prompt us time and time again when faced with a trial to come immediately to you in faith. That you might be refining us and developing in us a steadfast faith time and time and time again. We're thankful that we can do that because we have a right relationship with you. And again, it's by grace and mercy, for we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, it was a gift given to you. If, if we got what we earned, we would be judged by you. Instead, you meted out your judgment upon your son, and it's him that we commemorate in this service. As we think about his body being broken for us, his blood being shed for us, and for us to be redeemed because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the gift accepted by faith. So Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing on each one here and those that are not here, but as we spend some time in the next few moments sharing these elements, may it flow out of our heart and not just using up the moments, but that we be fully engaged with thankfulness. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm gonna ask the men if you'd come, please. First element is the broken bread and we're going to have Tom uh, ask a blessing for it, and then the guys are going to bring them to you, take it and hold it, and we'll give you a signal we'll partake together. So, Tom, if you would. Our precious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together here in this warm and dry building. And we thank you for the beautiful sunshine that you have provided outside also, Lord. Lord, we... We do go through trials and, and we suffer for your namesake. And we can count them all with joy because of what you have done, the finished work on the cross. We just give you the glory and the praise and we thank you for that. And we, in Jesus' precious and holy name, amen. Amen.
We think of the broken bread. We think of Jesus suffering in his body on our behalf. He could have enjoyed another day of praise and adoration in heaven, but he found himself in the hands of those that would beat on him and then crucify him. And he did it on our behalf. Let's eat in remembrance of him. We likewise take the cup and ask a blessing in Mike if you need us in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we thank and we praise you. May all glory and honor be unto you that we can come and assemble today in your glory for what you have done for us upon the cross, that we may have this, this freedom and salvation in you for what you have done. May our lives be an example of your love. May we be madly in love with you and show that love to, again, to everyone in this dark world who needs to see you. And be touched by your love. Let us be an example of sacrifice and commitment and love in your name. We give you glory and we give you honor. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. discovered in the garden that an innocent's blood need to be shed in order for their sins to be dealt with. And Jesus put the final stamp on that and the sacrifice of himself and his blood was shed. Let's drink to the new covenant in his blood. I'm going to ask the men to come back around and collect the cups, if you would.